Bibles now, if you would please, to Ephesians chapter 6, the sixth chapter of Ephesians, and we've only missed uh, one week, but it seems like forever to me. But we've just finished up uh, studying several weeks on the subject of the filling of the Holy Spirit. We've been talking mainly about the outward expression of filling, which is the way in which we relate to one another in God-ordained institutions. So for weeks we've talked about the church and about the home. We talked about the workplace. And I hope that you learned something or found something valuable in that study. But now we're going to turn our attention to a different subject. And this one will also take us several weeks of study. And we're going to be talking about Christian warfare. Uh, Paul shifts the subject matter in these next few verses But we really ought not to think that what he says here is disconnected to the rest of what we've already been studying. I think what Paul has done, he's taken these first five chapters of Ephesians and brought us down uh, to this very point that we're going to start talking about tonight on about Christian warfare. In the first chapter, uh, remember Paul took us back to the very beginning. Uh, He talked there about our election in Christ and how that it is God's intention to bring all of his people uh, together to him and he'll bring them all home to heaven. Uh, Paul talked about how far away we were from God when God reached down and saved us. He tells us that we were dead in trespasses and sin and then God awakened us and enabled us to believe the gospel of Christ. Then he started talking about the Christian life and he told us things uh, about what God expects from us as we go through this life. He told us that we have a high calling from God and that as Christian people we ought to live according to that calling that God has given us. And then next he went into that whole discussion that we've been studying for several weeks concerning the filling of the Spirit. And there he tells us that we need to yield ourselves, that the Holy Spirit must permeate every thought, every action of our lives, and God's will needs to be done in our lives. Well, all of that is preparation for what comes next. We need all of these things. We need the filling of the Spirit. We yield ourselves to the Spirit. But as we do, we find that we're in a conflict. There's a battle that's going on. And so Paul talks about this great cosmic conflict against unseen forces. And whenever a Christian decides that he's going to live for the Lord, when he dedicates himself wholly to what Christ wants him to do, he'll find himself in the crosshairs of the enemy. And this is why Paul tells us that we need to put on the whole armor of God if we're going to fight against the devil and that enemy. Well, we're going to start reading about this tonight. If you'd stand with me, please. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse number 10. We'll read down to verse number 12. He says, Finally, my brethren. And, of course, that brings us to the last section of the book. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word and for those who come out tonight. I ask you, Lord, that you might bless in the message, strengthen us as we learn more from your word. Help us to understand this great conflict that we're in and how truly we need to depend upon you. Bless in this sermon tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
I'd like you to look briefly, if you would please, down at verse number 14. This is not part of the text, of course, for tonight. But it says, Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. In 1858, there was a man by the name of George Duffield who preached a message on this text. And in his message, in the closing part of it, he said these words, Stand up, stand up for Jesus, the trumpet call obey. Forth to the mighty conflict in this his glorious day. Ye that are brave now serve him against unnumbered foes. Let courage rise with danger and strength to strength oppose. There were three other stanzas that were in that poem that George Duffield spoke. And um, the Sunday school superintendent of his church Uh, picked up that poem from him and had it planted or had it uh, uh, printed in a leaflet that he gave to the Sunday school classes. Well, one of those leaflets uh, fell into the hands of a Baptist newspaper. This was, again, back in the uh, 19th century. And uh, this newspaper spread these words all around the world, and that's where we got the, the song, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. What I've done is taken the title of my message from part of the words of George Duffield's poem, where he said, Forth to the mighty conflict. And this is a mighty conflict in which we're engaged. And in this 10th verse, Paul tells us about it. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. This is a conflict that we're in, and we must depend upon the Lord. And so those words in verse number 10 begin the study of Christian warfare. And as Christians, before we ever even think about fighting this battle, we have to forsake all confidence that we have in ourselves, and we must put all of our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Scripture says we go in the power of His might. But we ought not to forget that we do have to go. The battle is ours, and it's a battle that we have to fight, because God never tells us in Scripture that He's going to fight this battle alone. Of course, He's the strength. He's the power that that goes behind us. But you can't just sit down and say, God, go fight for me. I'll sit here and twiddle my thumbs while you fight for me. That's never going to work. We have to be in the fight. As we were studying the book of Joshua, we learned that uh, the Lord and his angelic armies knocked down the walls of Jericho. But that victory didn't come until Joshua and the people were faithful to do exactly what God said. They marched around that city and then the walls fell. And so you and I, we are involved in this warfare. We have to take part in it. Well, we're going to talk about that tonight and introduce the subject of Christian warfare. And this, again, will take us uh, several weeks to go through this. So let's begin this evening by discussing, first of all, the nature of the battle. The nature of the battle. You see, when Paul is speaking about this warfare, he really doesn't have in mind the same things that he's been talking about in other places of Scripture. If you go to the book of Romans, uh, Paul talks about a great inner conflict, a struggle that takes place within a person when he becomes a Christian. In chapter 6 and 7 in Romans, he talks about how sin tries to take control of our thoughts and of our minds. And he speaks about the great difficulty uh, of Christians as they live trying to do what's right, trying to fight their flesh. And always there's that inner conflict that we're involved in. But when we come to the book of Ephesians, Paul is not talking about the inner conflict. He's talking about an outward foe, something that takes place outside of us. There are forces that are outside of us. 
And those forces are engaging in a warfare against us. And those forces, the Bible says, are evil and they consist of the devil and his emissaries. Well, here's the first thing that we need to understand about this warfare. And that is, it's more than a physical conflict. It's not just a physical conflict and we don't fight against a physical enemy. In verse number 12, he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And the first thing I think you ought to notice about that phrase is the word wrestle. Because there are so many people out there in the Christian world today, or so-called Christian world, that tell you that there is no fight, that Christians don't have to worry about the battle, that once you get saved, all that you really need to do, you just need to sit back and let God take control and do everything for you, and we don't do anything. Now, notwithstanding the song that we just sang, God will take care of you, that's certainly true. But there are people who think God will take care of you, and so you don't need to worry about these evil forces that are out there. But if you're somebody who thinks like that, then I'll tell you right now, you're doomed for defeat. The devil likes nothing better than you to think that he poses no threat to you. And he's content for you to sit back and believe that he's a fairy tale, that he's the figment of somebody's imagination. And there are plenty of people out there teaching and preaching today that evil is just an influence, and evil is a state of the mind, and there really isn't any such thing as these forces that are out there, these evil forces that are fighting against us. And so they say evil. Well, that doesn't really come from a spiritual world. Evil is a state of the mind. And so that means then that evil must be a part of the physical being of man. And so the way to get rid of this, the way to get rid of these problems is to just make some lifestyle changes. Uh, Start to do better. Try to clean up your act a little bit. The way to get rid of evil is to educate people. It's to improve lifestyles. It's to improve economic conditions. Just apply some, some good Christian principles and a little salve to the problem and everything will be all right. Well, that leads me to the next statement that since this is not a physical conflict, it doesn't have a physical solution. It's not a physical conflict, so it can't have a physical solution. The problems that exist in the world today can't be solved by putting a little bit of Christian salve on things and just asking people to do right. And do you know that's sadly the attitude of, that comes out of many pulpits today? And that's why you have preachers that get involved in, in politics and why they try to change the government as if they can enforce Christian principles on, uh, on people just by, just by fiat. Just pass a law and things will get better. And so they they think that the government is going to change things. Just pass laws that make people do right things. What they fail to recognize is this unseen world out there. And that unseen, those unseen forces that are against us, they're bigger than our government. They're bigger than anything that we can throw against it. It's more powerful than we are. And the only way that we could ever solve any problems in this world is to have God change people's hearts. You can't enforce religious laws. Now, we might think, well, you know, here we are in America, democracy, uh, founded, our, our country founded by Christian forefathers, and so we have a Christian nation, so we ought to have a Christian government. Well, go back in history a little bit, and you'll find out that that is not a new idea. Go back to the Holy Roman Empire. Now, I'm not speaking about the Roman Empire. I'm talking about the Holy Roman Empire. 
And this is what happened when the apostate Roman Catholic Church decided that it was going to wed itself to the government. And so what they tried to establish was both a secular government and a Christian government. Now this took place in the Middle Ages although some of it went back as far as Constantine in the 4th century. But they tried to make a, a Christian government. And so there were some uh, countries in the, in the uh, central part of Europe who decided that they wanted to, to uh, invigorate and bring back again the Roman Empire and, and call it then the Holy Roman Empire. And this is where they would force all of the people to come into the Roman Catholic Church and they would bow down to the Pope. Well, many of you who know the history of this, you understand that when that happened, that caused a lot of religious persecution. There were Baptist people who were killed by the millions, by those who wanted to force them to give up their faith and to join Roman Catholicism. Well, one thing we know about the Roman church, it's always been rife with corruption. It still is today. I mean, you read it in your papers every day about the corruption that takes place in the Roman Catholic Church. But if you go back to the Middle Ages, I mean, folks, that, that was more horrible than you can even imagine. And when the government tried to change things by becoming a Christian government, then persecution was the result. And the reason is you can't change people by doing things and dealing with the physical You have to get into the spiritual realm. And so you have to get to the place where you fight against these unseen forces with the weapons that God has given us to fight with. And we have to use those weapons in the power of his might. A little bit later on, we're going to talk about the weapons of warfare. Uh, Paul describes those in verses 13 through 17 of this chapter. But for now, I just want to mention one of those. And one of those weapons of warfare is the sword of the Spirit. And the Bible teaches us that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, and it's the Word of God that God uses to change hearts. So we're not fighting a physical warfare. We've got to get into a spiritual realm, and God must change hearts in order to change the world. And so let's stop thinking about physical things that we can use to implement to solve the world's problems. What lies behind the world's problems is not the enmity that exists from man to man. What's behind our problems is that unseen world out there. And the problem is the enmity that exists between man and the devil. That unseen world is ruled by the devil and his angels. And that's who we're fighting. So the Bible says here that we don't fight against physical forces. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And you'll notice that over and over again, Paul keeps saying against, against, against. And he doesn't want us to forget. He wants us to be sure to get this. The problem is not man to man. That won't solve problems. The problem is man against the devil. Now, before I go on to the, to the second part of the sermon, I do want to make one more statement about the nature of our battle. And that is that our nature, and I'm talking about our human nature, ensures this conflict. Now, let's go back just a minute to the thought that many people have that the way to cure all ills is to make people understand the, the evil nature of things. They, th- they think that if you let people know that there are bad consequences for doing bad things, then people will stop doing bad things. And when you let them know that there are good consequences for doing good things, then people start doing good things. They'll always choose good things. 
And so psychiatrists and psychologists and legislators and judges and preachers and politicians, they think that way. But when they do, those people are totally ignorant of the human nature. They don't know what the Bible really says about the human nature. Now today, what are we doing? We're building more prisons. We have uh, prison populations that are overcrowded. They're even talking about releasing prisoners back into the general population because there's no place to put them any longer. Well, what people fail to realize is prisons have been built for bad people. We build those to punish people for doing bad things. Now, prisons were not originally thought of to be a place of rehabilitation. You put people in prison for doing bad things. And we have the overcrowding, we have the prison problem, because people continue to do bad things. But we've got psychiatrists today, and they're trying to figure out why do people do bad things. We have parents that send their children to psychiatrists today to try to figure out why they do wrong things. Why do kids do bad things? Well, I don't know if they got the memo or not, but God said that the heart is a problem. We are corrupt. Our nature is corrupt, and our heart is deceitful above all things. And so our nature ensures this conflict. Well, here's the thing about it. Now, maybe we can excuse the psychiatrist, and we can excuse the psychologist, and we can excuse legislators and judges and politicians for not knowing about this and not understanding the human nature. We can excuse them, maybe, because they don't have uh, or don't claim to be in touch with God. But the people that we can't excuse over this is the preachers. There's no excuse for preachers not knowing about this. But you know what? Preachers are preaching it wrongly, too. Our Baptist colleges are, are teaching our young people today against total depravity. They teach them there is no such thing as total inability. And preachers tell you that, that man is not helpless. He's not totally depraved. God has put ability into man. And all that man really needs is to have this spark of faith that's in him to be fanned. And all of a sudden, he's going to turn himself to Jesus Christ and believe in him. And so what you really have today that's being taught, even in our Baptist groups, is self-help religion. I can do it with God's help, which is the same thing as saying uh, God can do it with my help. And that's not what the Bible teaches. And this is why you have people talking about having a part in their salvation. There's not a word of truth in that. And there's not an excuse for, for preachers not to know better about it. Now, if you understand really how powerful the foe is... And when you understand what that foe can do to you, how would you ever think that man by his own will could ever turn to God and put his faith in Christ? It won't happen. Now let's go back to chapter 2 just a minute. If you would look at verse number 1. There Paul said, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in the time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And if you keep on reading, you go, you go on and you find out that the next verses tell us that we are alienated from God. It says we are in darkness. We have no hope. We're strangers from the covenants of promise. We are without God in the world. 
And now you come down here to chapter number 6, and it tells you exactly who we're struggling against. Principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. And so we have all of that going on around us, and then on top of it, we have a nature that's bent on sin. The Bible says that our hearts are desperately wicked, And so now are you going to tell me that suddenly that people are going to turn and trust Christ simply because there's some preachers that told them a little bit of niceties? It can't happen. There's no excuse for preachers not knowing this. And there's no excuse for college professors in fundamental schools not knowing about it. Our nature ensures the conflict. And we're not going to escape out from under this unless God intervenes and he makes a change in us that we can't make. It's impossible for us to make the change. We have a human nature bent on destruction. And all of these things that we just talked about are nails in the coffin of a man who's dead in sins. So why are we susceptible to wars? And why is there crime? Why is there all the evil that's in the world today? Trace it all right back to the human nature. Now on the outside, we look pretty good. And some of us may think that we do some good things... But really, we're just like an iceberg. Above the surface, things look fine. But underneath the surface is the mass of the berg, and that's what sinks the Titanic. We have a nature that cannot change, and we're in a conflict that we cannot win unless God comes and enables us to win it. And so what we do all the time by the things that we try to do for ourselves, we simply add fuel to the flames of hell rather than quenching that fire. So the scripture says, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded our eyes, lest we should believe the gospel and be saved. And what does our nature do? At every turn, we acquiesce to the desires of Satan. But still there are preachers who say, no, you have the power to believe. What Bible are they reading? It's not these scriptures. We have a foe who's stronger than we can imagine. And it's only by God's power coming to us and it helping us that we're ever able to withstand this conflict. And so the nature of our battle, it's not physical, and it doesn't have a physical solution. Well, let's go on here just a little bit. We'll quickly consider a few other points concerning this battle. Uh, secondly, I want to talk about the stature of the enemy. Now, next week, we're going to start a three-part message on, called The Resume of Our Enemy. The Resume of the Enemy... And we're going to be talking about Satan. We'll talk about where he came from, about the origin of evil. We'll talk about the personality of Satan. It'll take us three sermons to cover that. And uh, we'll have a lot to say about it. But I just want to make a few comments tonight about Satan to kind of give us a a start into that. And then we'll save the in-depth look for later. So first let me say about him that Satan is real. He is real. Now Satan is a phony. There's no doubt about that, but there's nothing phony about Satan. He's real. And there's nothing better that he likes than to make you think that he's not. The devil loves all these little caricatures that we have of him. He likes that picture of the little red man running around in red underwear with horns on his head and a, and a, a pointed tail and a pitchfork in his hand. The devil likes it when you think about good and evil, that you think that good is a little angel standing on this shoulder, whispering things in your ear to tell you to do rightly. 
And then on the other side, you have a little red devil whispering in this ear, telling you to do things wrongly. He loves it when you have that idea. And you know why? It's because whenever somebody like me gets up to preach or somebody's going to talk about the devil, that's the very first thing that comes into people's minds. They get that little cartoonish character of who the devil is. And so when you try to talk seriously about him, people think that you're a fool. Uh, The devil is something out of folklore. He's a cartoon character. And so when you talk seriously about him, people think you're crazy. Uh, they think you've got some kind of medieval idea. You're talking dungeons and dragons here and, and uh, Grimm's fairy tales and Aesop's fables. So if you want to talk seriously about him, then people think that you're a fool. But I want to make a statement right now that may shock some of you. You may be surprised that I'm going to make a statement like this. You're used to hearing me say that you cannot be saved unless you believe in Jesus Christ. But I want to make a statement that might shock you. You cannot be saved unless you believe in the devil. Now, I'm not talking about trusting the devil, obviously, but I'm talking about believing that the devil is real. Now, you say, well, why do you have to believe in the devil in order to be saved? Well, it comes down to the authority of God's Word. And if you want to bring it down a little bit closer, it comes down to the authority of the words that Jesus spoke while he was here. Jesus said this, he said, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words, listen, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He also said in John 5, 39, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Now, if you search the scriptures, you're going to find out that, the, that Jesus had a whole lot to say about the devil. He attributed the, the unbelief of the Jews to the father, their father, the devil, the father of lies. He called Satan a deceiver. Jesus even said this, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. And so there's no doubt that Jesus taught that Satan is real. And if you disbelieve the words of Jesus, you call him a liar. Now, you know what the Bible says about disputing the word of God? John writes about it in 1 John chapter 1. He says, if we say that we have not sinned and God says that we have sinned, then we make him a liar. And then what happens when you make God a liar? Well, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, follow me on this for just a moment. If we make God a liar, his word is not in us. Well, what does the Bible say about the word of God? Well, interestingly enough, Jesus had something to say about the Word of God, and he said it right while he was speaking to Satan. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So how are you going to live? By the Word of God. How will you be saved? By the Word of God. So faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And so if Jesus says that the devil is real, and somebody comes along and says, no, the devil is not real, then they dispute the words of the Son of God. The Bible says that you make him a liar. And in turn, if you make him a liar, then that means that Jesus is not sinless, and therefore Jesus cannot be the Savior. And so if you dispute his words, then you dispute the very words by which you're saved. So I don't have to take the Bible and go through all kinds of gyrations and long proofs to try to prove that that the devil is real. All that I need to do is just turn to the words of Jesus. He spoke about it. He said, there is an enemy that we're fighting. So Satan is not a fairy tale. 
He's real. But also, the Bible teaches us that he is powerful. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, "...in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them." Now there we notice that Satan is called a God. Well, he's not the God, not God with a big G. He's God with a little g. Now, think for just a moment about who's Paul writing here, who he's writing to. Corinthians, he's writing to the Corinthian people. And these were people who very well understood the reference that he's making. Now, in that time, those people believed in all sorts of gods. A polytheistic uh, society, they believed in all kinds of mythology. Well, Paul is not saying that Satan is a mythological god, but he's showing them that they understood how powerful these gods were that they believed in, and he was using that as a metaphor to show them how powerful that Satan is. So they understood that Satan is a powerful enemy. Jesus referred to Satan's power in a parable. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus referred to him as the strong man armed. Now, Jesus is able to cast out devils, And he referred to himself as being stronger, but the devil is also strong. And it doesn't even help us to say that he's stronger than us. I mean, there's really not even a comparison there. Just by saying he's stronger than us, that doesn't tell us anything. He is so strong. The Bible teaches that the only way that he can be cast out is by the power of God. So you can let preachers think a little bit about that before they talk about how you can overcome the influence of Satan. And suddenly, just any time that you want to, that you can trust Christ, you can't do it until Christ regenerates you first. Now, we'll talk about that power a little bit more next week. The third thing we know about Satan is that he has a mission. And Satan's mission is to destroy everything that God builds. Back in the very beginning when God created the world and he created man, man was the crowning achievement of God's creation. And what did Satan do? Immediately, he set out to destroy God's crowning achievement. And so he tried to deceive man, and he did deceive man. Well, the devil is trying since that time to take every person that he can to hell. I'm going to explain that at a later time. Satan, of course, does not have the power to send anybody to hell. But he uses that influence. He wants to to keep people blinded from the gospel of Christ so they can't believe. And so in a sense, we can say he wants to take them to hell. But there are some people that he can't take to hell. And that's because God reaches down and he saves them. But that doesn't mean that the devil's through. Not just because God saves somebody, because now what the devil tries to do is to try to destroy the influence of that person. So that person cannot influence anybody else to become a Christian. And the devil's good at that, because what has he done? He's destroyed the Christian testimony of many of God's people. There, there are many Christians that when they go to their family and to their friends and the people they work with, when they start to talk about the Lord to them, you know what happens? Just like that, they shut them down. They will not listen. And you know why? Because that person does not have a life that backs up what they say. And so the devil has destroyed their testimony. And so what the devil can't completely destroy, he just simply tries to render ineffective. And so, in short, we then, we have this constant turmoil, we have this conflict that's going on, and Satan has always been on this anti-God mission. And that will culminate when Satan sets up the Antichrist. 
Paul writes about it in 2 Thessalonians. He says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is the mission that Satan is on. He works day and night on that mission. But thank God for this, his mission will fail. Ultimately, it will fail because God will take care of him. Now, the fourth thing we see about Satan is that he has a method. And Satan's method is subtlety and deception. There's not a single person who ever entered into a league with Satan that wasn't first deceived. That happened with Eve. She partook of the forbidden fruit because she was deceived. And whenever the devil tries to make you think that you're going to gain some kind of advantage by entering into sin, and it doesn't make any difference whether it's a monetary advantage, whether it's success in this life, whether it's some kind of happiness that he promises, you can always trust this. It doesn't matter. It's always a deception. That's what the devil is always up to. There will never be anything, any good coming out of a league with the devil. It's always deception. Now, just to tell you how good that Satan is at his methods, how deceptive that he really is, all that we really need to do is to look at what the Scripture says about the millennial reign of Christ. The Bible tells us that in the end times that Jesus is going to come and set up a kingdom on this earth. And for a thousand years, Jesus is going to rule here in perfect peace and righteousness. He'll rule this world with a rod of iron. Crime waves will be no more. All of that will be stamped out. Every person will have to come under the perfect rule of righteousness of Jesus Christ. But you know what the Bible says about this? After that 1,000 years are over, Satan is going to be released. Now that 1,000 years, he's been bound in the bottomless pit. He couldn't affect anybody. He had no, he had no ability to, and none of his angels had any ability to affect anybody on this earth for 1,000 years. So 1,000 years, people are living in perfect righteousness. Now what happens? Satan gets loosed, and just to show you how much he's perfected the methods of deception, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, and when the 1,000 years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. So there you have people after 1,000 years of a perfect government, perfect rule, perfect righteousness. It only takes a very short amount of time and the devil is able to deceive all of those people again. And so he goes out to try to do battle against God. Well, there's another battle he's not going to win. Final destruction will come upon him and everyone who follows him. Well, let's finish the lesson then with this. Fifthly, Satan has a kingdom. Now, one thing about Satan is that he's an arch counterfeiter. He tries to act like a king. Well, what does a king have? A king has a kingdom. And so Satan counterfeits God. God has a kingdom and Satan has a kingdom. Jesus talked about it when he was explaining just how ridiculous it was for people to think in his time that he cast out devils by the power of Satan. And he made this statement. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his 
kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. So Jesus said, Satan has a kingdom. Well, what do you find in a kingdom? Kingdom has subjects, doesn't it? A kingdom has workers. A kingdom has ambassadors. A kingdom has emissaries. And what does Paul say in our text that we've studied tonight? He says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. All of that is part of Satan's kingdom. So what does it mean? It means we have an enemy of great stature. It means that he has all of this help out there that does his bidding at his request. He has all of these people and all of these evil angels that are helping him. And that's why I'm telling you tonight, this is a mighty conflict. Forth to the mighty conflict. And it's a conflict that we simply cannot win unless we go in the power and the might of the Lord Jesus Christ and put on the whole armor of God. That's what it's going to take to defeat the devil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we spent together tonight, for what we learned from your word. Help us, Lord, to understand this conflict that we're in. The forces of evil are all around us. In these next few weeks, we'll be studying it and talking about it. We'll talk about this, these uh, evil angels that are out there. But thank the Lord also in our study, we're going to be talking about the elect angels of God who are fighting on our side. Lord, bless your people. Help us to be ready to engage in this conflict through the power of your might. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing. I have decided to follow Jesus.